Hello and welcome to another special episode of The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. This is a slightly different format to our normal episodes. Uh, this is an interview episode, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Seth Skorkowski, who I'm sure you know of from his YouTube videos and his many books. Welcome, Seth, and thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I, I love chatting with you. We've been chatting a lot lately. Yeah, we've been gaming together quite a lot recently. In case any of our listeners haven't come across it, this has been the Flotsam and Jetsam campaign that I've been running for How We Roll, and it's been a fun and weird experience so far. It's certainly, I think, the first time I've run anything for an actual play podcast that I didn't write myself, and yeah, it's it's really, I don't know, it's kind of forced me to do very different things and take a different approach, and I'm, I'm glad it's been working. <laughs> Well, it's one of the things uh, that Joe says, uh, running something that you wrote and having to adapt it and writing it whole mm-hmm. cloth is, is, is a similar but different skill set uh, because a lot of it's been done for you, which is great, but then you have to learn it in the way that you, uh, as if you made it up, because if you made it up, you know it better than anyone. Um, and then you have to figure out when is appropriate to break it. Uh, for your situation, yeah. and I was, I always feel like you've got more permission to to break it as well when you made it in the first place. If it's something someone else made, you feel worse about breaking it somehow. Well, if if you wrote it yourself, you're not breaking it; you're editing. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> which uh, which is a process of creation. Had, had I told you about the uh, the cult in my distant family? No, I don't think so. This is wonderful stuff. I wish I had known uh, as much as I do when we started Two-Headed Serpent, uh, because my great-grandfather was in a UFO cult in the 1930s. Oh, wow. Before wow. UFO cults were in vogue. And, wow. Um, so they're, they're, they're self-stylized uh, prophet, and this is out of Oklahoma. Uh, it had to deal with, see, there was Hollow Earth, the Jade Tablets of Thoth the Atlantean, Serpent People. Uh, there was some word you could say, and if, some, if somebody couldn't say it, that meant that they were actually a serpent person. I wish I could remember how to pronounce it. It's like, like a proper shibboleth. Wow. And um, uh, the Dero and, and all sorts of uh, just weird shit. And the cult, I guess in about the 30s, moved up to Colorado because of uh, a prophecy of like a, an asteroid that was going to hit the Earth and cause a tidal wave. Now, this is before that was even like an accepted theory of how the dinosaurs got wiped out. So I was like, well, wow. you guys are kind of ahead of your time on some of this. So in this this uh, and uh, my great grandmother would not allow my great grandfather to go with him. So that was kind of when they stepped back. But my dad was a kid. Um, he'd go to his grandpa's, and my grandma would tell him, "Like you don't believe anything that old man tells you." And uh, so my great grandfather would tell him about his abduction and, and all this. Uh, he, he was convinced he was he was abducted. 
Well, so when my grandfather died, uh, my grandma finally let it spill all the stuff about this, this cult. She didn't want, my grandfather was evidently always embarrassed by his crazy daddy. <laughs> the cult's still there. Uh, oh, wow. It's the Brotherhood of the White Temple. It's still active. And huh. um, when we researched it, uh, their, their leader, a guy named Dr. Dorial, evidently had, and, and if you recorded the video of yesterday's session, you'll see a spot where I started grinning really widely. He evidently had a massive collection of old weird tales and stuff. <laughs> because when you start reading a lot of the uh, the stuff, it starts really following like Lovecraft and all the old pulps. So like, oh, it was wow. like, inspiring and morphing this cult uh, from the 30s uh, up yeah. through the, the 50s when, when he died. Uh, so uh, that's why when you were like, the guy was kind of weaving all the pulps in there. I just started kind of grinning. as like, <laughs> yeah, it's my family. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and then uh, a few years ago, I guess about four or five years ago, uh, my parents went to the UK. Hmm. It was the weirdest damn thing. They were, they were in Bath and some little restaurant somewhere. And they were chatting to the, the, the waiter or whatever. And, uh, he said he was, he wanted to go to the U S he was going to this big trip. And uh, it kind of came as like, my sister lives in New Mexico. I was like, well, New Mexico is one of the places he wants to go. And he wanted to go see, uh, area 51. And he was, he was very much into UFOs. And, and my dad, uh, I was like, well, do you know anything about Dr. Doriel? And the guy evidently got like real serious. He's like, you know about that? And uh, so they started talking <laughs> about this. And my my dad says like, well, you know, the, oh, the jade tablets of the Thothelanian were translated on my grandpa's kitchen table because Dr. Doria was living on my grandpa's farm at the time. <laughs> um, so this guy was like, oh, dad's like, I don't think you'll ever randomly bump into anybody that has ever heard of this as long as I live. But that, that one poor guy in math is, you know, so he might've <laughs> thought that I was one of the, uh, Atlanteans come down to tell him that he was on the right path because they will, uh, take the guises of humans to help lead you. I've tried reading some of their stuff. It's wildly, uh, interesting. <laughs> Oh man, are you going to turn some of this stuff into a pulp scenario at some stage? I don't know. Um, like I said, they're still around. You can like, uh, I guess it's, I guess it's now online. It used to be mail order. Um, you can like go to their college and uh, get a doctorate in metaphysics. So I have <laughs> been, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I could probably throw some just stupid money at this just so I can get my doctorate in metaphysics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! But yeah, the timing of that as well. I I knew that there were a bunch of UFO cults that had come up in the 1960s, but it's not really something I associate with the 1930s. Mm -mm. And uh, so, like, you know, my my great grandfather, uh, some of his stuff was like he talked about it. Uh, it looked like it was metal, but it it felt like fur or moleskin. Um, uh, which I don't know. Uh, you know, dad talked about when, you know, he was, he was nine. It was the most amazing stuff ever. Uh, because <laughs> it was, 
grandpa's like, yeah, oh, yeah, it's right over there. You know, the ship came down and uh, they didn't talk to me with their words, but I could hear them in my head. And, uh, he, he talked about certain things with like time displacement, which huh. the, the guy had like a, a eighth grade education. So the concept of like, you know, how relativity or any of that worked at the time, there was no way he would have really been privy to it, but he might've been able to pick up some here and there, possibly from pulp mags or their little cult Mm -hmm. leader who was really into pulp magazines. So, uh, but yeah, there's cities buried under the ice in Antarctica and and all this. When I was reading, it was like, uh, I think I've played this adventure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess a lot of that stuff came out of theosophy as well, because there were, I can't remember the exact overlap, but there were were certainly people around that time who were involved in theosophy who believed very much in the hollow earth and, um, you know, the the hidden races of men and the race that was to come. And a lot of this stuff ended up feeding into the the more mystical aspects of um, what the Nazis believed. And they had all sorts of weird beliefs along those lines. Well, particularly Himmler. I, I, yeah. I don't think Hitler really cared. But, yeah, it's it's just weird, all this stuff that was in the public consciousness in the 1930s. And what you were saying about the uh, the reptilian shapeshifters, the serpent people, I mean, I guess as a trope that must have come out of Robert E. Howard. I mean, he was writing about that in the late 20s. I, I wonder whether that is just something that you know people in cults seized upon from the the pulps and and ran with. Well, you know, it's like they talk about like with uh, with UFO uh, sightings and stories when uh, uh, Close Encounters came out. Mm. All of a sudden, they all began resembling the creatures from Close, Close Encounters yeah. or whatever the the popular media was at the time. Kind of influenced the direction that it, that it went after that. So, uh, okay, well, when the days before TV, you know, this was what people consumed. So evidently it was affecting them the same way that Spielberg would do later with his own kind of addition to the, to that. So I, I, I don't, I don't know. I was just, I think we were like, I think we we're wrapping up to it serpent when, um, my dad gave me a bunch of just wonderful literature and I saw the whole thing about this is how you identify a serpent person as you, <laughs> uh, you have to have them say this word, which my wife and I were struggling to pronounce like, shit, I wish I had known this like months ago and I would have brought this <laughs> right in there. Uh, so, so you're telling us Seth, you can't say this word. Uh, you can, but it's, it's a really big tongue. Twister. No, no, I mean, you <laughs> can't say this word. Uh, yeah, I can't say it. I, uh, I'm evidently a serpent person. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, well, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> I mean, I guess it's got to be quite difficult if this cult is still going, because if it were just something that was around to the 1930s, I mean, you could just, you wouldn't even have to file the serial numbers off. You could just throw them straight into a pop Cthulhu game and run. But yeah. the the problem with cults that are still around is that the larger ones have lawyers, and you, you probably don't want to piss them off too much. Yeah, and it's just one of those like 
but so much of it came from the the pulps anyway. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. I uh, a lot of it though. When you when you look at the the, the stories out there, it's like well, they're all based off the same stuff originally. So I might as well just base it off the original stories as well and uh, write my stuff off that. But but that was the reason when you were running the uh, that one <laughs> game. He brought that. I was like, oh, it happens. Yeah, oh, <laughs> it really yeah, yeah. does. It really did. <laughs> I can't take credit for putting that bit in there. That was, that was definitely Brian Cortemanche. That was in his original scenario. I've, I've taken some liberties with what he wrote, but that one was very much in there. Actually, wow. I say I've taken some liberties. Mostly what I did was throw in a lot of stuffed frogs of everything else in Brian. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a wonderful addition. So, uh, so, <laughs> so you, you. Did, you did very good on, uh, on building on that. <laughs> Oh, that, that that was sheer panic on my part. You decided to go into the shack, and there's nothing outlined about it. And I thought, oh, shit, what can I put in here that's weird? Stuffed frogs are weird. I wonder what I can do with those. <laughs> I will say that we are the most wandering group uh, to play with. I hadn't realized how, like, laser-focused my own group is till I started playing with mm. a lot of, like, different people uh, mm. online. And I was like, oh, wow. It, we also have a lot of very um, uh, tactical players in our group, like coming from like old D and D. So it's very much like everything is a puzzle, everything is, is something to be solved, and we will we will lock in and we will get done. So we could we can usually breeze through stuff pretty quickly because my players are very, at least I guess two of my more vocal players are very like this is what we need to do, and then uh, so they're usually kind of dragging everybody to like stay on track and stay focused on whatever <laughs> the, the, the adventure is. Uh, then like I played a, an aliens game. It was my first game of aliens and it advertised itself as like five hours. And we were like 21 or so before we, we wrapped it. And it was like, <laughs> I, I was hoping that we, we were originally like, Oh, we'll, we'll do like a couple, like, two sessions in July and, uh, and we'll be done. It's like, okay, cool. You know, I'll join this group. It's only give me two sessions. We wrapped it in November. Uh, <laughs> this kept going. <laughs> and uh, I was like, and it looks like we were all the just absolutely wandering every, every which way. So I was like, yeah, okay. Well, kind of interesting to see how other, other groups play. Cause I had gotten so used to, to my little, you know, team that I hadn't realized how uh, how our style had evolved. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I've got a lot more used to that wandering style. I stopped role playing for a long time. I didn't game at all during the nineties, and when I came back into it, uh, it was just as the forge was kicking off, and there was that whole indie games explosion. And a lot of the friends I made were people who were writing indie games around that time. And so that's the world that I, I fell into when I got back into gaming. And that is a very improvisational style. It's sort of, here's a situation or here's a premise, you know, create some characters, let's go see what happens. And as a result, for a long time, that was really the main type of gaming that I did. It wasn't really investigative or plot-driven. It was all very character-driven and yeah, you know, let's let's play to see what happens. And I think you know, having moved from there into doing a lot of podcasting and actual plays, that the people there 
I mean, it's it's a weird sort of fusion in that, yeah, it is a bit more plot driven. You know, you tend to be playing pre written scenarios, but at the same time, the players are you know generally quite consciously putting on a performance and try to make their characters and their actions as entertaining as possible which means that you do get a lot more of that digressive exploratory play as well just sort of let's see what happens with this character and you know as a result i've managed to fall back a lot more onto my old improvisational style of gming and uh, generally throw whatever's on the paper out the window as soon as play starts and just see what happens and and i i don't know personally i much prefer that style of play i uh, well you're very good at it um oh thank you i, I think it's things very very massive in your laptop i was like oh my god i could not do what scott did like <laughs> <laughs> there might have been a come to jesus meeting after like a second <laughs> <laughs> like, guys, well, come to me. What, <laughs> what the hell are you doing? <laughs> uh, that was oh god, that was that was such a weird, weird game. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've I've not had a game go off the rails so sharply and spectacularly for a long time. That was great. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it was it was it, it went very sideways, and uh, but you just you just kept serving back. Like <laughs> it, it, I was, I was very impressed. I, uh, Oh no, I started with, uh, with dungeon crawling. You know, I, I was like old AD and D first, second edition through the entirety of the nineties. And then, uh, most of the aughts, um, you know, and so, and, and it was very, very dungeon crawly, you know, the, you know, we're, we're going, we're going through the dungeon or the wilderness or whatever it was. And when, uh, and a lot of my group I've been playing with for over 20 years. So like they kind of did a lot of that journey, uh, with me or results. And we started doing like more and more elaborate plots, but we, we didn't actually, we weren't that exposed to a lot of the other games out there. So we were trying to like do all this stuff with D and D, which D and D is not designed for. And yeah. it, it, it became these like more and more elaborate house rules uh, to the point that we were playing a game that at, at some point had been D and D. Yep. <laughs> really wasn't recognizable uh, anymore. Um, and then whenever we did play other games, for some reason it didn't click that we, we could play like a side game of uh, cyberpunk was one we did a lot. And some of the other guys did uh, like a star Wars game. Um, or vampire games off the site. And for some reason it never clicked that we could use those mechanics and, uh, and, and, and use like a skill-based system. Like, I, I don't know why we always choose like, well, side games work this way, but our primary game is this. And um, so when we, we kind of like finally burst out and started doing very uh, story driven investigative uh games my players still had a very tactical mindset of everything is a is a puzzle and we have to focus up uh so we very rarely uh went wandering off into to madness uh we've got one player who who will charge down any rabbit hole that he sees and <laughs> i've had him for 22 years i can never guess what the hell he is about to do at any given time because oh, wow. uh 
And he's always convinced it's the best course of action to take. Uh, and sometimes <laughs> he's very persuasive. And I'm sitting behind the screen going, I have no idea where in the hell you came up with that. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, you know, after an event, she'll be like, hey, man, I'm, I'm just, so where did you get this theory? And sometimes it's like, I don't know. Like, okay, because I've, uh, I've been racking my brain about that. And I still can't figure out how in the hell you came up with this is obviously what the the bad guy is or, or something. When like, did you just, do you have like a random word generator that's like under, <laughs> under the table that I don't know about? Cause. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and of course some of the other players are kind of used to it. It's like, okay, sometimes we'll throw out a really good idea, but we need to stop and think, does that idea make any sense? Cause he's very terribly persuasive. And if they, <laughs> Uh, uh, trying to come up with what to do and they're kind of stuck and he'll throw out the first thing. He sounds really confident. They're like, okay, well we got nothing else. Let's do that. And they go wandering (laughs) off into madness. Uh, And since I rarely get to play a few weeks ago, um, uh, one of my players wanted to run a game. I was like, Oh hell yes, I'll play. Mm -hmm. And, and I was the one that fell for that player's kind of like pitch of (laughs) going along with an idea that made no sense. And I was actually all on board until about, I think about 20, 30 minutes in other players said, so why are we doing this? Why this? And I was like, Oh, we're doing it for, and I kind of went silent. Like, Oh damn, it happened to me too. Like, you're right. He's really persuasive. (laughs) I had never been on the receiving end of it. (laughs) But it's amazing how you can get caught up in the moment like that when you're gaming and just do the most lunatic things that just make perfect sense. I I, I remember this wasn't a game I was playing. I was GMing it, but um, it was a game of Over the Edge some years back. And uh, Paul Fricker was one of the players. uh, And he'd come up with a plan because they they decided there was something weird going on at the offices of a local ISP in Alamara and they wanted to get in there and so his character looked like a teenager he wasn't but he looked like a teenager and he decided that the best thing to do was to dress himself up as a, a pizza delivery boy get a pizza from the local pizza delivery place knock on the door and and you know make some show of how they got the order wrong but find some way of getting in there and and then find out what was going on come back out and so he really got into role-playing this whole pizza delivery thing uh, to the extent where it made perfect sense to him to go up there, dress in this pizza delivery uniform with this pizza, make this pitch, go in there, give them the pizza, get a tip, and then walk out again. Just And, and yeah, they basically they spent an hour and a half giving the bad guys free pizza. <laughs> and and it, it all made perfect sense to them. <laughs> see that that is a perfect example of what i'm talking about uh, <laughs> they they did one with like some uh delivery company in, in one game and they actually had shirts made with the logo of a delivery company but they had to order like a minimum of 50 but they only needed two so they bought 50 and they did their two and so like, I was like, well, we'll just use this as a, as a cover for, for future adventures. So they had this box of uh, shirts that were all monogrammed for this completely made up company. So they could 
basically do like a late night sort of UPS delivery as their way of getting inside a warehouse or something. <laughs> and uh, it just became this weird little thing. And uh, like, okay, we'll go with it. We'll see what happens. And um, <laughs> it became an institution. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, but yeah, what you were saying before about that player who goes off at wild tangents and seizes upon the wrong thing and chases it vigorously, those fundamentally are my favorite kinds of people to play with. Because as a GM, I, I always want to be challenged and I want to have to think on my feet. And if someone does something really wild and unexpected like that and suddenly, okay, well, uh, how do I make this fun? That I I don't know. That gets my juices going. Is <laughs> so I'm 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 kind of weird in, in in a lot of ways. Like I I have to have that. Um, you know, I have to have a wild card player mm. because uh, another thing that which which my group is really terrible about is analysis paralysis, where yes. they will get themselves in. Uh, a weird feedback loop of their trying to decide what to do and they start ruling out possibilities. And, and with that player, he, he also it has that he, he will, hmm. because he'll, he'll go on the hypotheticals of, Oh, if we do this, this will happen and this will happen. But he's kind of basing it off of information that I have no idea where it came from. Um, and they'll, they'll lock themselves up. So it's like, you know what I really want? I want that guy that plays like, 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 a, like a high school freshman. It's just like, <laughs> screw it, I'm bored. Let's, I'm opening the door. Like, oh, thank God. Yeah, They're yeah. Like, well, somebody just opened the freaking door. And, um, but at the same time, I like having my, uh, my, my, my very careful, my very thoughtful players that mm. will like analyze it or approach things with a very uh, organized fashion. But and I think if you've got too much of any one of them, it can quickly lead to disaster. But it, it, yeah. it's, it's kind of like you know the you know the perfect you know kind of coincidentally D and D party. It's like well you got your healer, you got your fighter, you got your rogue. You know like and it's like and now you are this perfect unit. I think with all the different types of players, you need a good mix because mm. if you if you lean too far one way the weaknesses of a certain play style become emphasized and that's where you, yeah. uh, you end up with a, a game that cannot focus up or a game where they just refuse to role play because they're so stuck on the, um, the puzzle. That's the problem with tactical yeah. players is they're usually not the best role players. They're, they're yeah. so focused on the plot that they don't get into the character as much. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think there's a really kind of a good dynamic you can have if you mix that. And sometimes you have to like stir the pot, bring in new players uh, because eventually everybody kind of picks up each other's style and that, that diversity kind of narrows down. So I was like, we'll throw in a, a new guy and the, yeah. the group's dynamic goes sideways for a bit. And then they kind of figure out how to work together. Um, so I, uh, I like that, but also I am, I, I spent so many years playing with, uh, people that wouldn't focus up, you know, I'm kind of, I have a very like, okay, guys, let's get back, um, on the game. Like, cause they'll get sidelined by side conversations and, and, and whatnot. Yes. And 
you know, I've, I've kind of found it's like, you know, we're here to play. Uh, obviously, we're here to have fun, but we have a mission. And the mission mm-hmm. is to do whatever our game is. Uh, because if you if you play for four hours and then you look back and you realize you only got about like 20 minutes worth of playing done, even though you had a ton of fun for that other three and a half hours, you eventually kind of start feeling like we're not, never getting anything done. And everybody kind of like yeah. gets sad about it, even though at the time everybody was having a blast. So uh, I, I, I tend to be more of the GM. It's like, okay, um, have fun, but we're still working. <laughs> we're going to yeah. play this game. Yeah. Dang it. And uh, <laughs> um, that, that at least kind of gets them going, but some of my players, that's how they like to play too. And I don't know if that's just, I, I drew people toward me that have that, or I conditioned them slowly over decades uh, to be that way. So uh, most of my mm. players are usually pretty good about focus up. Uh, and part of the reason though I ended up using a lot of modules is my players got so good at reading me that okay. if, if I wrote it, they got really, really good at, th- at analyzing a problem. Like, okay, well we know Seth, how would Seth write this? And uh, so I started using a lot of modules. Um, I, I would come across the defensive like, well, we did this because that's what you thought. We thought you wanted us to do. I'm like, no, no. Is that how you've been playing before? But, you know, because mm. the, the author of the whatever adventure it was doesn't think the way I do. And all of a mm. sudden, like, they, they felt suddenly so much more challenged. And I don't think they had fully known how much they'd psychoanalyzed me. And I had mm. no idea how much they had and how evidently mm. hyper effective they were at it. But, um, but they got really good about, even if they had uh, threw a plot at them they'd never seen before, they usually on their, you know, first or second try, were already going the right direction. Like, Oh man, they're so clever. It's like, no, they just, they knew me. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. You've also made me wonder how much of the start of GMing I've developed it has come down to the fact that for the at least for the past 20 years, most of my GMing has been done at conventions and clubs. So I very rarely play with the same exact group of people. I'll, I'll play with a lot of the same people, but I'll very rarely play with exactly the same group for more than, say, a month or two at a time. Um, so I, I guess I've got very used to sort of switching around and adapting to different players and different play styles. And I, I haven't got into the rhythm for a long time, not until I started really running for how we roll, of, of adapting to the way a particular group plays. Well, it's, it's, it's a very different skill set. And, uh, you know, when yeah, I played for years before I actually really paid attention to any of the uh, uh, online groups uh, about gaming or all that. So even when I started the channel, I was like naive to a lot of like what it was at that point already decades old common terminology. And mm-hmm. I, I realized how much they'd either like, oh, there's a word for that. That's great. Or, oh, it's a great way of thinking. But like, wow, I've never needed that. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. for example, like with us, uh, session zeros means something totally different for us than it means for other people. Because, well, I've, I've played with half my group since the late 90s. Uh, we don't need to figure out where everyone's uh, 
limits and and all of that are we we already know all that um most of what we'll talk about is like okay so what sort of like theme do we want to go for it's like i want to do a little bit more indiana jones meets agatha christie like okay cool and then you know we'll do it but it's never like we officially meet for it it's usually while we're sitting around like uh hanging out like so Mm -hmm. tell me about this this campaign you're wanting to put together like "Ah, i'm thinking this and this okay I'll, I'll whip up a character and tell me what you think. And it, it, it was never, it never had a formality to it. Hmm. Um, it was always just done through usually one-on-one conversations as I'm hanging out with these people like normal. So when you know, a lot of people would talk about the session zero stuff, it's like, yeah, I've never needed that. But, but then when like you can step back and think about like, well, there's a lot of GMs that, yeah, they'll play with a group for like a month and that's like it. And then they're on to the, the next group and the next group after it's like, mm-hmm. uh, it makes a lot more sense for that type of, uh, of setup mm-hmm. than, uh, than what I have, what I have, you can't just whip out one day. Uh, it was very cultivated over years to get what we have, but we, yeah, we don't, we haven't had like what I would call a session zero, uh, in a long time. I think we did, we did, uh, we played Traveler, we we did them, but that was for character creation. I think a lot of groups end up developing their own jargon and terminology just to describe stuff anyway. I, the internet obviously has led to a proliferation of certain things, certain terms like that. But yeah, I think particularly with what you're talking about there, where you've had your own home group for some time or you've played with the same people for, for years or decades, then it's perfectly natural that you've developed your own rhythms and terms for things and so on that are going to be very different from everyone else. Oh yeah. Well, I can think, um, when I'll do my channel, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll drop a term, which half the time is a term that I, I made up because it's like, I, I don't even know how to search for this term. Uh, and either I made up a term and I'm like, yay. Or people say, Oh wow. You know, we always called it this, and then I realized it's the common term. I think one of them is I used was system neutral, mm. and I was talking about uh, some something that can apply no matter what type of game it is, or um, you know some 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 adventures you have. It's like it doesn't matter what game you use as your engine for it. This adventure can work. It's system neutral. And really, the term is system agnostic. I think. Yeah, I've heard both. I like my term better, but evidently yeah. that is like through different online communities that became kind of the the accepted term for a lot of people for a mm. while. I think I've I think I've heard both in equal measure over the years, but yeah. Um, I, system agnostic is is one I, I tend to associate more with um, with British gamers. I think I, I don't think I've heard it quite so much in the US, but. Maybe maybe that's a misconception on my part. I don't know. I'm I'm online, so <laughs> yeah, I have no yeah, idea where half the commenters are. Is <laughs> <laughs> hey, but yeah, it's like there's a term. It's like let me go to Google and look this up. Like oh crap, there there was a word for that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think a lot of other terminology has such an evolution or transition that it means so many different things that it's kind of, it, it almost has to break back apart to mean sub things like metagaming uh, yeah. is, a, is a big one where, 
you know, when I was introduced to the concept, it, it, it meant very strictly like you're acting on this out of character knowledge. And there's the classic D and D troll example that I think was the very first example forged by some, you know, gamer in the late seventies. And we passed down like, you know, through our tribes and, <laughs> Now I, I I will encounter people talking about it, and it dealt in and metagaming, which is now like you know clearly the worst thing, would be like using a luck roll uh, or, adi- or adding mm-hmm. luck in, in Call of Cthulhu. And it's like what that's that is nothing like what I was taught. It's like well you know your character's changing their action because they know that on a character sheet, there's a piece of paper that says they can, they can do this. And, but the character in the game doesn't know about that. So that's not metagaming. And therefore that's a bad thing. It's like, Mm. I think you guys took it a little further than it originally meant. And there was a a lot of things that started kind of uh, being classified as metagaming that would either uh, break uh, immersion or, were rules that people saw as metagamey. And yeah, I just found it very weird because I, I hadn't paid attention to the community in so long that when I came back, everything meant something different than it meant before. <laughs> You're kind of playing catch up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Um, well, I mean, obviously terminology in any field evolves over time and things change, but yeah, I, I think a lot of that comes out of ooh, probably discussions that started around 20 years ago, but went on primarily throughout the early 2000s when the forge came along and started introducing different types of games and different approaches to gaming that were codified in gaming rules and at the same time there was an awful lot of reaction against that from people who saw themselves as defenders of traditional gaming and didn't like this new style of gaming because it broke immersion or it was too metagamey and yeah i (laughs) That was such a weirdly acrimonious time in RPG discussion. I I do not miss those online fights one bit. I mean, the dust largely seems to have settled on it, except in some corners of the internet. But it was just such a weird time. Well, and that was part of the reason I never dove too deep in those communities. Um, so, you know, when, when the internet became, like, everywhere, uh, at that point, like, kind of like the mid and late 90s, and all of a sudden, like, you know, you know, just average people could be online and form their communities. Um, you know, I was I was so deeply into to AD and D at the time. I, I wasn't paying attention. Um, and then when third edition came out, third edition changed everything, and that was the rise of the indie stuff. I was still playing AD and D. Like I was like, oh, you guys don't even play what I play anymore. And then whenever I would kind of peek in to see what it was about, I would see those kind of early days of just venom i was like i don't want to hang out with these people and (laughs) i'll go back to what i'm doing (laughs) and uh i i find it just interesting how everything did kind of evolve those directions but a lot of them are still the same arguments before like if i don't like something i will come up with a reason to sound superior in justifying why i don't like it when it might just come down to i just don't like it because yeah. i don't like it 
Yeah. Uh, but now we have to come up with why it is inferior and, <laughs> uh, or why I am, should be respected and awed at because I, I don't do that. And it's like, and every form of fandom I've ever encountered in my life has those people. Uh, oh yeah. And, you know, how, no matter how obscure there is always going to be somebody that will come up with a way to talk bad about some aspect they don't like to make themselves feel good and put something else down. And, mm. uh, that's just a human nature. I think when you do the kind of stuff that, that you and I do, where we talk a lot about games for an audience, that it's, it's something that you've got to be quite careful about and cognizant about because yeah, it is all very well having preferences and we all do have our preferences and, you know, we spend a lot of time analyzing the stuff that we like and we don't like and talking about them for an audience. But yeah, it is, I guess, sometimes quite difficult to try to present that in, in a, I'm trying to think how to put it, but a more neutral way. To that. Yeah, exactly. Not doing what you're saying, not ascribing a superior value set to your own preferences, just accepting the fact that you like certain things. So when I first started my channel, uh, that was a huge problem I encountered a, a lot because, uh, you know, you, you don't realize that the way that you play is not how other people play or even thought was possible to play, but to you, it's just normal. And uh, so a lot of my early stuff, I, I realized like, you know, people are, aren't, reacting in, in a way that I would have expected. And it was like, okay, it's because I actually walked in assuming that other people were aware of this or, or thought this way on something before I even approached how to talk about it. And I was like, okay, I actually have to like peel away my own blinders of like all the other stuff that's out there in order to talk about a subject because, uh, I was coming off like a total arrogant jerk and it was just, no, it was more naivety than, than anything mm -hmm. else. Yeah. Uh, or being able to, to really see that just because something does not work for you doesn't mean it's not absolutely perfect yeah. uh, for, for other people out there. And that doesn't, uh, it doesn't make it wrong. Uh, if, even if it's just not right for you and yeah, yeah. And, and that was that was a big thing that I've, I've had to kind of learn the more and more I've gotten into the community of how to, uh, one, see all the other stuff that's out there, that whether it applies to me or not, just be very aware of it and take that into account. But then, two, when I talk about a subject, try to start at the very foundation level of explaining what I'm going to talk about before I talk about it. So it's like, I just want to make sure we're all kind of on the same page before we broach the subject. Uh, otherwise you're going to get lost very quickly or misunderstand what we're talking about. And then there's so many things that also have multiple approaches or viewpoints simultaneously. And part of the reason why John and I have started the podcast is as I told him, like I've got a lot of topics that I can't do as a one man show. Uh, okay. They they must have a back and forth, 
uh, yeah. because if, if one person's doing it, it's a lecture. If two people are talking yes. about it, it's a conversation. But yeah, uh, even when I put on a, a fake mustache, I can't have a conversation. I, mm. it, and it will come off as a lecture. And the problem is both sides are right. And <laughs> I was like, mm. it's the only way to approach it. So yeah, uh, and, and that was one of the, the big things um, that actually got me team up with John. I was like, I, I have a ton of stuff I want to talk about. And I can't because mm. I don't, my, my one man show bit does not work for, for certain just conversations. Yeah, that brings us on quite nicely, obviously, to Modern Mythos, the podcast that you are doing with with John. So, I mean, you, you talked a little bit there about obviously what you're getting out of the the the, the different format, but oh, what is it directly that led to this podcast happening? Well, uh, what led to is John approached me. Uh, I was blissfully doing my thing, and then mm-hmm. John reached out to me one day and uh, and pitched it to me and i've i've had a lot of people try to pitch me podcasts even well before i started my youtube channel people try to uh get me to join on a podcast where we might just talk about movies critically or make fun of them or, or whatever the subject was and i always said no uh mostly because uh one i the the, the technical aspect i knew was daunting and uh, I knew that I would be the one that had to do it. I would have to handle the editing. Uh, my uh, my college degree was actually in radio, TV, and film. So, ah. and and even though that was, I learned how to edit radio um, on reel to reel tape. You reuse a razor blade. Uh, <laughs> oh so, my god! <laughs> yeah, like nothing that oh, that is wow. remotely applicable to the world of <laughs> of, of today. I. I did linear editing on super VHS tape uh, for video. Oh, uh, nothing that remotely works uh, like today. <laughs> uh, money well spent on that degree. And, um, but, but John walked in he's like, uh, you know, he'd been doing the, the, the Miskatonic university podcast or songs. Like, okay. He's seasoned. He, he, hell, he can teach me through the learning curve. This is great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, he he already walked in saying we're going to bring on an editor uh, as as another partner. Like, okay, cool. That takes all the behind the scenes stuff off because, mm. like, as you know, uh, if you want to do a one hour podcast, that's God knows how much time setting it up. Then the actual getting through the technical issues of somebody's mic isn't working or they can't hear you. Uh, yeah. Then doing the actual interview, which is twice to three times longer than the recorded show and then the actual editing nightmare. And yeah. it's like, um, and, and, and I knew I would be stuck with that. It's like, okay, so you're going to chat with me for two hours and I'm going to spend the next 10 putting it together. And you're going to think that we're equal. Mm-hmm. No. So John walked in and said like, this is what we're going to do. I was like, Oh wow, this takes all the stress out. Uh, he can talk me through the learning curve and I have a lot of subjects that I want to talk about. And John is very, experienced. He's got a lot of different games under his belt. He's got a lot mm-hmm. of years and he comes at it from a very different direction than I do. Uh, which once again, I said, I needed to have somebody I could talk to that didn't have the same, uh, position or at least, you know, mm-hmm. vantage of how they got there 
as I do, so we could at least have some back and forth. Otherwise, if it's just me twice, then it's not like having two people. It's just one person. Uh, so he approached me, said this was something he was wanting to uh, to look at. And he originally wanted it to be strictly uh, Call of Cthulhu. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I suppose it's like, Call of Cthulhu is both our, is our favorite games. I think that one's going to get the most airtime regardless. It is, uh, for both of us, our very favorite. But I also don't want to limit ourselves because there's a lot of other great mm. stuff out there. And, you know, I, I have a reputation as being a guy that's like, it's like oh, I, I play all these games out there. And I'll talk about lots of different games and, and all that. The, the part that's very rarely talked about is, uh, but I kind of mentioned, like, I played AD&D for so long that when you go to, when you look at, when you meet the people that are the most diehard D&D or death, everything else is a wannabe because D&D is the original. You know, those, those people are insufferable. I was their king. <laughs> like, I was their king. Uh, Wait, hell, I still played I still played the Gygax editions, not the second edition crap, not this third edition <laughs> trash. I, uh, I has to have Gygax. That was like I was their king. Yeah. So when I finally kind of broke out of my shell and like started looking into other games, uh, I may have gone a little nuts of of really wanting mm-hmm. to explore all the different ways that people can approach things or come up with cool stuff and um so I'll mix and match and steal from one game. It's like, we're going to steal this this rule or this method from this, and we're going to drop it in here, and it's going to work beautifully. And um, so I was like, I don't want to limit ourselves to just Call of Cthulhu because I think that is dangerous uh, for kind of limiting your own ideas if you're only looking at one uh, game. Because I like the idea of like you can talk about other stuff that's out there, and then mm. it's our favorite. We're always going to come back to it. I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't see it as being neglected. Yeah. So I, no, that, that was one no. of the big things I wanted. Is is a, a, while we knew we were going to talk about it the most, we weren't going to be officially in any way limiting ourselves to it. Because I don't know. I, th- I think if that's all we talked about, it would turn people off from it. Uh, as an audience, if that's not necessarily what they want to play versus uh, let's talk about general stuff and we'll link it to call it Cthulhu, but it's still useful information, whether you actually play that game or, or not. And hopefully we can talk you into it because it's our favorite. Now, as we're speaking, you've put out three episodes and you've covered a, a broad range of, like you say, games and also approaches. I mean, you've talked a bit about, uh, writing for RPGs, you've talked about, well, writing in general, you've talked about um, your favorite modules and uh, how you'd approach adapting certain scenarios. Uh, do you see the podcast as having a, a particular focus, or are you going to, are you sort of shifting general topics as, as episodes go along? We want to talk about just gaming. A lot of it is investigative style gaming is what I want to talk about. Um, and definitely do talk about modules and, and whatnot. That was actually one of the big things John wanted. That's why he reached out to me is I, I, I review mm-hmm. lots of, of different modules and uh, he likes the way that I have, um, I can break them down. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But I also wanted to so bring in a lot of just the odd conversations. I think like, you know, one of them I brought up like uh, using modern day elements in your game mm-hmm. because uh, a lot of uh, keepers will complain of, of feeling like when we start using modern technology, it ruins all their plots because now we've got a cell phone with uh, the internet right there and it's got a camera and all sorts of cool stuff. And uh, they, they feel like it, it, it kind of limits what they're capable of doing now. And it's like, well, these are ways you can embrace it. And yeah. uh, so I do want to talk about kind of those conversations. Cause I don't think they're limited to just that game. Like I've got one I want to talk about later on about, uh, character death. How? Oh yes. Uh, I I have a very controversial opinion that I think one of the most valuable things that a player can experience is having their character die. Okay. Uh, <laughs> like not like every day. Yeah. There's that just that that <laughs> one time when you have a character you love and they die. You suddenly play a lot better. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wonder. I mean, oh, I, I, I think I think we could get into a debate here. Actually, I, I I've always been of the opinion that uh, the the threat of death is more interesting in the game than death itself. That yeah, that that death when it comes to a player character is often quite anticlimactic. Uh, the threat is the most important, uh, mm. but I think to give that threat weight. Is, is is that first taste of this mm. is what that is. And then after that, you can keep it to the threat as long as they remember that, that it's it's not a hollow threat. It's a, it's a real <laughs> damn possibility. Uh, so like with, with Call of Cthulhu, I've, I've laughed with John of like, I am, I am the biggest smack talker of how I will murder these characters. We have had <laughs> Call of Cthulhu characters that have lasted a dozen or more adventures. And, mm-hmm. and then I will go on to like the different Call of Cthulhu. It's like, Oh, the longest we ever had was three. It's like, really? Cause we, we pretty much cleared through mansions of madness and this and all of all this other stuff. And, uh, the only ones that died were usually like, yeah, I was unavoidable, man. You did something really dumb right there. Or, yeah. <laughs> but, but I, 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 I don't kill them. Uh, but at first, I think I'm a little bit more vicious and then I retract, Mm -hmm. but I keep telling them I'm still as vicious as, as, as that, that first one. And I don't have to as much because they played enough games where they, they do know that I, I I will, I will follow through, (laughs) but the threat is actually what I want. I just, I think the most important thing is that they, they learn what it means to have that happen. Then you don't actually have to do it anymore. Because uh, a lot of people think that oh, if you kill a character, that means every game you have to kill one. No, God, that's no. boring. Um, yeah. Then they don't invest in the character because they think of the character is going to be disposable. They don't put their heart and soul into falling in love with the character and all that. So definitely not. But I've also watched players when they realize that they you know, they're actually kind of immortal and they can't die, and they mm. start playing very badly they, they don't think yeah. about their actions they don't think about risk um, they'll charge the monster or the gang or gangster head on because they're not they're not actually worried that their character has a threat so 
I think one of the most valuable things you could do is actually have them lose a character. Mm. And by a character, I mean singular. <laughs> and then after that, that threat has teeth. And then you just threaten them. <laughs> Thinking back to what you were saying earlier, though, about decision paralysis, do you ever find, particularly when running horror games, that you, know, you hit the other end of the scale from the uh, the players who throw themselves at the monster, where you get the ones who become so... Maybe it's a mismatch. Maybe they're the wrong people for uh, to be playing a horror game, but they get so caught up in the threat to their characters and the horrific nature of what's going on that they just become paralyzed and don't do anything. I have found that the players that do that uh, in, 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 in horror games... We'll do that in any game. Right. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So whether we were playing D&D or Traveler or Call of Cthulhu, it was, it was, the, it was the usual suspects that would always you know, get the, the, the paralysis or, or indecision or a, an odd case of cowardness and kind of volunteer other people to put themselves in harm's <laughs> way. Uh, I, I think in, in Call of Cthulhu and horror, we notice it because the, 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 the threat is kind of has that unknown quality. There's kind of, there's kind of sometimes more menace to it uh, because of just the nature of, of a horror game. But I think I tend to see notice that it's the, it's the same usual suspects that, that do that. Uh, just, it has a different, uh, it's, it's under different lighting, no matter what you're playing. Uh, and when, uh, when we were kind of, kind of fumbling our way through and I was doing a lot of different house rules and systems, trying to get systems to do stuff they really weren't designed to do. Uh, that was an issue I had. One of the reasons I, I flipped to Call of Cthulhu and I fell in love with self edition came down to the idea role. Um, mm, I've used okay. an idea role exactly once, but I love the fact <laughs> it's there. Uh, as, as my ripcord, like if, if I need that damn ripcord, it is there, we will do it. But, mm. um, I, early on, I did have, uh, and one of those players, um, uh, who, at, who they asked for an idea role. And I hated the fact that I, I was like, no, I'm not giving an idea role because it was, uh, on that particular adventure, anything they did would have moved the game forward. And by anything, I mean, I literally mean anything. They were in a hotel room. If they left the room, it would have moved forward. And, and they literally sat in this room and they were just talking <laughs> about what to do. And, 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 and I knew that any of their weird places they wanted to check it out, any of those, all of them were actually correct in getting the game to move forward. But they had paralyzed themselves that so they didn't want to choose which one. And it says, like, I want to do an idea role. I was like, no. And they're like, why? I was like, because an idea role means that you don't know of an action to do. And you guys have named like 10. Mm. You choose one. And yeah. You know, yeah. If, and if they had chosen a few and none of them were working, I would allow an idea role to keep the game going. But it was like, I was like, you can't use this as your way of getting me to tell you what the correct thing is versus you just not wanting to make the wrong decision. Uh, so it was kind of like our, our one bump early on was 
they initially went to the kind of way you abuse a rule. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's not what this is intended to be. Uh, but when, but as, as GM, first time I ever read that and I could, mm. I could see so many incidents in my trying to reinvent the wheel of doing an investigative games of like, Oh my God, why didn't I think about something like that? That just, mm. oh, son of a bitch that, that solves that problem. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's it's not just that it solves the problem, but it's that for a horror game, it does that impor- all important thing of presenting the opportunity to make things so much worse for the characters. Yeah. So one of the other things is like I don't see Call of Cthulhu as a horror game. Ah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it is investigative. Uh, it has the horror edge, but. Just about anything I run is going to have a horror edge. So what makes Call of Cthulhu the most different for me is it's very designed around investigation and mystery and, and deeper plot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really where I think its biggest strong suit is, is I, I think it's very elegant in, in how it works for those. Uh, it, it just horror is the most popular but I think you could take Call of Cthulhu and remove the horror and you'd still have a fantastic investigative game. Just, yeah. just right there. You, you, you still have the king of investigative games. So uh, that's really how I, I view it is that's primarily what it is. It just happens to be, full, be horror flavored, but it's an investigative game to me. Really, the only mechanic that's in there that enforces any degree of horror is the sanity mechanic, and you could just ignore that mechanic without breaking anything else and run a, a straight investigative game. Yeah. Now, and I love the investigative mechanic, and I love all the supernatural, uh, all of that, so I, of course, mm-hmm. embrace it, but I don't really see it primarily as being a horror game. I, I see it as just... Mm. detective and that's really what i love that's the big thing that i love is uh the more complicated plots and whatnot that you can do in those style of uh, of adventures versus you know simple dungeon crawls or, or hack and slash sort of things we've got these wonderful stories and all that we can do and like i said no matter what I played, I always leaned horror anyway. So it just, yeah, it just fit in that category naturally. It's interesting you say that. I mean, I, I'm probably much the same in that I tend to bring horror elements into most things I write and run, even if it's not a horror game. And considering that role playing arguably comes out of power fantasies or certainly the early days of it you know the whole leveling up in in dnd a lot of it was a power fantasy the idea of horror as being a strong element in role-playing games almost seems counterintuitive uh, what, what do you think it is that you know, keeps us bring in all these almost disempowering or horrific elements into into RPGs. My, my first experience with that really came down to uh, when we would play uh, Cyberpunk 2020 by our Talsorian Games. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you play D&D for so long, you get to be 
you know, 15th level and you get a million hit points and you can arm wrestle a dragon by yourself. And, you know, that's, that's it. We had fun and we loved it. And then we entered a game where it's like, there are no levels and it doesn't matter how amazing and skilled and tough your character is. Uh, a 12 year old kid with a 22 pistol can still kill you just as dead. It, there was no, I have so many hit points. You can't hurt me anymore. Or my armor class mm-hmm. is so high. You can't possibly hit me anymore. And, and it suddenly led to this horrific vulnerability that, um, uh, that feeling of fragility that no matter how amazing your character is, they were still ultimately human. And when we started playing that, there was the initial like surge of deaths because the, the players were all approaching it in that power gaming way. Mm. And even though they knew on a conscious level that didn't work, they had to experience that. it didn't work. And then as a GM, I had to experience too. It was like, Oh yeah, I'll throw in like, this many bad guys and like, Oh my God, that was a bad decision. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, 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 I threw an, an opponent that was too bad for him and they approached it like a, like a bunch of power gamers, which was the worst response. And the inevitable result was just, you know, bloodbath. But, <laughs> but once we, we got used to that as, as a, as a style of game that we liked, we really began leaning into it um, and we would get very John Woo actiony with the game that you are horrifically mortal and fragile then. <laughs> and uh, so we ended up actually taking the, that, that game mechanic. And when I first started getting into Lovecraftian, like Come of Cthulhu, we were using the cyberpunk rules heavily uh-huh. house ruled with its own sanity mechanic and all of that. Like, uh, because we didn't, we did, we thought this was like the perfect system. So mm. I actually did not use the BRP Cthulhu uh, for for many of our, our very first adventures. Like first time around the haunting, oh, wow. we were using Call of Cthulhu rules. Uh, the second time around the haunting, I was using Seventh Edition, but that was a few years later. Uh, yeah, huh. and and then we did fantasy with that. Didn't work as well for fantasy, but. But my players got really in love with, and I got really in love with, your characters are fragile, but that doesn't mean you're helpless because they would still do action hero moves in a game where one good hit will take you down and there's no coming back. And that's also part of the reason I think my players have actually survived so well in Call of Cthulhu is is that was kind of the fires they were forged in. Because a lot of people talk, it's like, oh, we're so fragile. You know, you should always run from fights. And my players are much like, oh, screw this, I'm charging. And, but they <laughs> would really pay attention to um, the rules. Cthulhu's combat rules, by the way, are, are massively uh, elegant. There's a lot of stuff you can do with them if you were used to playing yeah. the way we did. Where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to drop prone and I'm going to do this to get as many bonus dice as I can. And I will be doing these dodges and we're going to gang up on this guy to make the second attack, get the bonus dice if they're out of dodge, you know, all that. So my players, when they started playing Call of Cthulhu, came from years of playing Cyberpunk, which is uh, remarkably similar uh, way back Hmm. when it was originated. Um, I think Cyberpunk came from Traveler, 
Uh, originally, I think Pondsmith based it off of the Traveler system, but which is also a horrific okay. your fragile huh. glass game. So, uh, the horror of being fragile was never a thing to us. That was just how we've been playing at that point for about ten years. So it's like, okay, it's another game where we're fragile. That seems to be all I want to play. Uh, so <laughs> uh, that that wasn't even um, a hurdle at all. Uh, we just found a game that was perfect for detective, and and I loved the uh, kind of the aura of of the good Lovecraftian stories. You know, the the cults mm-hmm. and the secret societies in a modern day because we, we would do those in fantasy settings all the time. I mean, old school D and D was definitely uh, darker shades of darkness in a lot of ways of like oh, little God, cults yeah. and towns and, you know, the, the sacrifices and stuff. But um, this can get me on my whole discussion of genre, but for some reason, if, if it takes place in a, you know, ye olden times with horses and, and people wearing male armor, we call it fantasy. But if it takes place down the block, we call it horror, even yeah. if it's the exact same thing. Uh, yeah. And, but when I looked at what types of games I like to run, no matter what the time period was, it's like, yeah, I always leaned into the dark. Uh, that's just my natural state. I'd, and I don't see a lot of the stuff in even old published D and D fantasy scenarios as actually being less dark than they are in Call of Cthulhu. No, I think you're right there. Yeah. The difference is, and one of them, you're you've got healing spells and a million hit points, <laughs> and in the other, you've got ten hit points, and you probably don't know how to fight because it's not a game about playing a fighter. You're probably just, you know, Billy the Milkman. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you did learn any magic that could heal you, you'd probably never want to cast it because it would have a horrific price. <laughs> yeah, and we also we had also played D anD D games, so they didn't play adventures. Like when I said we did like weird house rules, like we literally had one two year campaign that was a huge hit. They were wandering minstrels, and they were intentionally not heroes. Brilliant. They would follow the heroes into the dungeon and the heroes would get slaughtered and they had to get out and they were broke. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fantastic. They had like no fighting skills. And it was, it was a, it was a fantastic horror game that we did. And it lasted for like two full years of playing very regularly. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, we got experimental, uh, at one point and that was a big one. And we, but we had to figure out how to rewrite the game of playing D and D where you're not a hero, but you had the potential to be. And we just kind of kept it going, but they were so lame compared to other, I guess, (laughs) D and D characters because they were just ineffective in in a combat, but they had every performance ability under the sun and (laughs) we would get into whole games. So they're buying new costumes for their shows. (laughs) So, Call of Cthulhu, I don't think, added horror for us. It was always there. It, it just yeah. added a great way of doing detective and investigative and that cool background of the 20s because it is it is old-timey, but it's still modern at the same time. And, uh, and that's a cool dynamic of in the past, but not in the past. 
I mean, it's interesting you saying that it's the setting rather than the content that determines whether something's fantasy or horror, because it occurs to me that a lot of modern fantasy comes out of, well, two sources. One is Tolkien, but let's forget about him. A lot of it also comes out of Weird Tales and the pulp magazines of the 20s and 30s. And it was precisely that, that it was often the same writers writing the same kinds of stories. I mean, if you look at you know Robert E. Howard and Clark Ash and Smith, a lot of the sword and sorcery or fantasy stuff that they were writing was basically just horror in other settings. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, b- before I, I, I started a YouTube channel, I was, I was a fantasy author and I always talked about mm. it was a dark fantasy because um, uh, when, when I first started getting like really into reading uh, a lot for, for pleasure, I, uh, I figured out rather quickly that, you know, there was in, in the bookstore, there was the sci-fi fantasy section and then next to it was the, the horror section. And then when mm-hmm. I started reading um, Clive Barker, who was massively influential on me, mm-hmm. his, his horror is very famous. He is very good at it, but that's almost exclusively his short fiction. His novels are almost exclusively fantasy and portal yeah. fantasy. Yeah. And he is a, a, a very good fantasy author but he was always dumped in the horror section because he his short fiction, the Books of Blood and Hellbound Heart novella and all that are are, def, are definite horror. And and as I kind of started exploring more, like a lot of Stephen King isn't horror, but it was always in the mm. horror section. Okay. And, and it finally occurred to me that if you have a story of, of a werewolf stalking a village if, if it takes place in, 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 in olden times, it's fantasy. And if it takes place at a Martian colony, it's science fiction. And if it takes place down the street, it's horror. And they could be the exact same story in every way, except for that setting. So I stopped really putting much um, kind of stock into a lot of the genre titles, because I think we tend to treat things that are horror differently if they aren't down the street. Hmm. And so to me, it's, it's the lighting you can, um, you can do a happy go lucky comedy that has some, some horrific things hmm. and we can laugh. Uh, what was, a? I rewatched it recently. Uh, Tropic thunder. Oh yeah. Um, you know, guy steps in a landmine gets blown to pieces. It's horrifically graphic. Yeah, yeah, they, 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 he's holding up the severed head and all this. Like, okay, well, it's really mm-hmm. well lit and it's done from a comedic angle. So the actual act of what happened isn't horror. It's how it's treated. And mm-hmm. uh, but, but the subject matter itself could be the exact same. So in a heroic fantasy setting, you have the exact same thing. It's in horror, but we're approaching it from I am big and tough and, and nigh and vulnerable and I will crush it with my sword while in horror setting it's like i am weak and fragile and you will you pose a serious threat to me and, yes. and that's the actual difference yeah I mean, on the good friends recently we were talking about beowulf and 
I suppose Beowulf, in, in some respects, is both of those in one. That at the the bead hall, when Grendel's making his attacks at first, I mean that is horror because you've got all these people who are just getting ripped to shreds by the sponsor that turns up, and then you have Beowulf turn up, and it's it suddenly becomes like heroic fantasy because you finally got someone who can fight the monster and then rip it to bits on its its own terms. Oh yeah, yeah Beowulf comes in, you know, da, 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 and you know he's. <laughs> You know he is mighty. You know, a lot of like the old uh, weird fiction, which you know weird fiction is what we used to call it because we didn't know what to call mm-hmm. that yet. Didn't have genre constraints because we didn't know that we that the genre was weird fiction. So it yeah. would bounce between sci-fi and heroic and horror in the same story. Oh yeah, you know very very regularly and. And I think as genre fiction became more and more popular and more and more marketable, yes, those restrictions started coming on, and most of them were were sales decisions uh, than anything else. Um, and then, uh, as influences became more widely known, such as the the, the werewolf story, silver wasn't a thing. In, in werewolf lore until a movie came out and they made silver bullets because mm. Hollywood wanted to be able to shoot the damn werewolf, but we had to come up with this thing and we had this cool little rhyme uh, that we made up. And that was all a Hollywood thing. And that's just mm. entered the lore about these monsters from that day forward as if that had always been there. When yeah. prior to that moment, there could be 15 different lores about werewolves. And if you pick up a, a story, and, and you read about it, you just accept whichever one it presented. Well, now you kind of have to talk about this silver thing because it is so deep in the public uh, folklore about this creature mm-hmm. that it, it became very you know, homogenous. This is what they are. Silver hurts them now. Mm-hmm. And with the weird fiction days, they didn't have that yet. They didn't have all the genre rules, so they would just do whatever sort of madness came to their minds, they'd put it out there and it would go, it, it, it just jump back and forth and kind of use the best of uh, each aspect. And then yeah. today, if you were trying to publish a lot of that, you have a lot of editors like, I don't know where to put this. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. What, uh, what genre tags do we put this on Amazon? We can't put 15, but we have to choose the top one. So you must choose. Mm. Is this sci-fi? Is this horror? Or is this heroic? Like, yeah, you know, like, um, none, but all three. <laughs> uh, some years back, I went to a literary convention, uh, the Alt Fiction Festival in Derby, and there was a panel that was talking about how genre books are marketed. And they had people who worked in publishing, and uh, there was an agent and a couple of writers. Uh, and and one of the writers there was Michael Marshall Smith, uh, who has jumped between genres an awful lot. And he was talking about how he was really happy that he'd got started writing in the late 80s, early 90s, because it, he felt that he'd had more freedom to experiment and play around with stuff that blended genres and moved between stuff, that by the time you know you got to... 2005 or whenever it was that this panel was going on, that marketing was dictating publishing so much that writers were basically being told, okay, your first couple of books have been within this genre. They've been successful. This is what you write now. Have you found that experience at all? 
Oh no, it's absolutely true. Uh, yeah. yeah, or if you if you want to write a different genre, you should probably go by a different name. We don't want to confuse mm-hmm. um, the reader, but it, it 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 does mean that it is very hard for authors to broaden what they write. It it, it mm-hmm. becomes very like uh, very pigeonholed, and the, the problem is. Nobody can even agree what makes a genre. That's that's yes. the other uh, yeah. wonderful industry myth is is you can have 10 experts tell you exactly what the rules are for each genre and not a single one of them will have a damn thing in common. It's all completely arbitrary. What was that John W. Campbell quote? I think it was him where he was asked to define science fiction. He said, uh, science fiction is what I read when I feel like reading science fiction. And yeah, that, that's that's about as much as you can pin it down. Yeah, and th- th- there's a lot of different ways that we we look at it. But yeah, so in the weird in the, the weird fiction days, it was so wide open that that mm. anything goes. We can make up whatever rules we want to our monster or whatever elements we want to our story because that's what makes that story good. And as it became more popular and uh, uh, more mainstream and more marketable. It, uh, it just kind of went this way. But also, a lot of it had to do with recognizable folklore. Uh, mm. You know, Tolkien kind of redefined what elves were, or at least yes. kind of cemented yeah. down a, a largely accepted uh, description of what an elf was. You know, now they're, you know, tall and with long blonde or red hair, and they shoot bows, and they, they frolic in the woods or whatnot. Uh, well, used to right before that became popular, man, elves could mean fifty different things. Okay, uh, they they could be like these little gnomes that snuck into your house at night and fixed all your shoes, or you know, they they might eat your babies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, in, invis- invisible spirits that drove people mad. Yeah, and and if you if you picked up a story and it was like we're going to talk about the elves, your first thought is like. Okay, well, what do you mean by elves? And then they would give you a little more. It's like, okay, cool. That's what elves are in the story, and, and we'll go forward. But when you had your first widely commercial successful definition of them that introduced a lot of people to it for the first time, it suddenly kind of became the standard. And to do something mm-hmm. other than that was kind of risky because people might reject it outright uh, because it doesn't fit into what they're uh, accepted folklore is, mm. and uh, and I also think D and D did a lot of that too, uh, with uh, how they kind of set up a lot of their monsters or how they set up how gaming should work. And it was it, it was just because it became so popular that that introduced so many people to it. So they're like, okay, this is how it works, and then that kind of became a fossil foundation for a lot of people that it's kind of hard for them to break out of. Yeah, this how how certain things are defined. Uh, one thing, and I, I, I talk about it constantly. One video, I just need to make a video on this. Uh, one of my favorite books that a lot of my Call of Cthulhu stuff is really uh, inspired by is a Dennis Wheatley novel called The Devil Rides Out from oh, yeah. 1934. Yeah. Love the novel, uh, despite the fact that it has every dated issue you can bring up with a Lovecraft novel. Oh, God, <laughs> yes. Yep. And in it, they have to go against elementals. 
And so I'm reading this coming from my, my D and D background. I was like, ah, elementals, you got fire, you got wind, you got earth, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And his elementals were like these just horrific things. Yeah. And, and, and then it kind of it later in another book, it actually talks about, it's like, well, they're, they're elemental emotions and, and they're all of this. And that's what it's based mm-hmm. on. But I just had just accepted the definition that uh, was given to me that very first time in a very wide way. And that's how everybody looked at him from then on out. Mm-hmm. So then I'd come across elementals in video games and they work just like the D and D ones. And I'd come across them in a TV show and they work just like the D and D ones. Yeah. But then when I went further before that happened, they used to mean something different mm-hmm. and I felt so weirded out by it. So and actually, yeah. in one of my most recent novels, I used that type of elemental. I was just about to say, I, 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 read, I read that recently, and yeah, I was quite taken with the the fact that you'd gone back to these these old ideas of elementals. Yeah, that that, that was one of my favorite parts of the book. Oh, well, I, I didn't know you'd even read me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and that was, and actually, when I tried to market that book, that book, yeah. uh, I pitched it as uh, New Weird, which is yeah. a new genre. Yes. Of we're trying to capture what made weird fiction yeah. this non thing, and the only way we can do that is by making a genre to say it's not a genre because <laughs> <laughs> nothing yeah. makes sense anymore. And it, it was so difficult to market. And I even remember talking with my agent, and then later with my editor. Once my agent finally managed to sell it, of like we don't know what to call this uh, because yeah. it jumped genres. It feels like it's feeter within urban fantasy. It, I mean, it's, it certainly starts out as an urban fantasy novel, I'd say. And then, yeah, as you say, branches out into something that owes far more to older weird fiction. And it was, it was a lot of, a lot of that was just kind of a love letter. You know, there's a lot of Clive Barker's and magic in that. There's a lot of Dennis Wheatley in that. There's clearly a, a lot of chambers uh, in that. And, uh, but there were all elements that I wanted to tell him and my story that I wanted to tell. And they just didn't fit well into the the niches. Uh, for example, a word of wisdom in, in the publishing industry is uh, portal fantasy does not sell. Never call it something a portal fantasy. Huh. Now, uh, absolutely true. Uh, Harry Potter is a portal fantasy. <laughs> yeah, I guess it is. Yeah. Well, with with Hogwarts being the other world, I assume you, yeah. you go through the the thing at the station, yeah. and you get taken to this other yeah. station that's simultaneously in the version. That's straight up portal fantasy. That's yeah, no different really than the is. wardrobe to Narnia. Uh, uh, Stephen King's magnum opus of the the Gunslinger series, which I love, okay. straight yeah. portal fantasy, and it's like. Like, never do portal fantasy except for these massive hits that are portal fantasy, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> and that's how a lot of the, the, the industry works is they have those words of wisdom that when you stop and think about it, do not make a lick of sense. Yeah. Uh, it's like, okay, I tell you what, how would you say don't publish bad portal fantasy, but good portal fantasy sells like gangbusters. The cynic can be thinks that, and maybe it's not that cynical that, you know, these days publishing and films and I guess to some extent gaming is all based on the idea that you're always pursuing whatever it is that broke the mold a little while back and forgetting 
that what made that special was that it broke the mold mm-hmm. and that by aping it all over again, you're just falling into the same traps that caused that to break out in the first place, that people want something new. Part of it's you break the mold and you do it well. Because uh, mm-hmm. if you if you break the mold and you do it badly, it's just awful. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that's also, it's also one of the big reasons that sequels are so hit or miss. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, like, well, we want to capture the essence of the first, but we can't duplicate the first. Otherwise, uh, that usually sucks. Um, mm. Sometimes it works great, but usually you have to like change it in a way that still works with the original and complements. Uh, the greatest sequel for ever doing that, in my opinion, is probably going to be Aliens, where it's like it very clearly goes mm-hmm. with the first, but we actually jumped genres. And oh God, yes, yeah. As I, it, it, they still work perfectly together, but mm-hmm. at the same time, it's not just the same movie with a Roman numeral two behind it. And yes. it, it, yeah. another one would probably be uh, the, the uh, Mad Maxes. Uh, yes, where yeah. you know, like oh my god, when like Fury Road came out after you'd seen like you know the evolutionist character was like, how the hell do you keep this being completely fresh and still completely working? Like, <laughs> yeah. This doesn't happen. Mm. You, you end up with a lot of the, 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 the knockoffs. Everybody's kind of afraid to take that big daring step. A lot of Hollywood will do is they'll pitch a little bit of money to somebody and say, like, okay, you make a step, but they didn't give enough money to actually make it right. And then that person will inevitably fail because they really weren't given a good chance. Like, and that's why we don't do anything but more Marvel movies right there is the way that failed. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After we we gave an inexperienced director not enough money. (laughs) As I'm sure you can tell, Seth and I found an awful lot to talk about. So we split this into two episodes. In part two, we're joined by John Hook and we get into a little more of the background of the Modern Mythos podcast, what to expect from it, and some of John's background in writing and podcasting. So you can expect part two to be released as another special on the 29th of June. Before then, please join us for another one of our regular episodes on the 22nd of June. This will be looking at the Windwalker himself, Ithakwa. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.